Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. Now, for those of you who listened into the last uh, podcast, we were speaking with Danish chiropractor-turned-researcher, Dr. Alice Kongsted. Uh, if you listen to the podcast, you'll remember that she was one of the authors in a series of three papers about global low back pain, published earlier this year in the journal Lancet. Well, I'm very excited to be speaking with the lead author in the podcast today, who happens to be an, an Aussie, uh, Professor Rochelle Bookbinder. Now, uh, if I just go through Michelle's, uh, Rochelle's uh, uh, bio, first of all, she's the NHMRC Senior Principal Research Fellow. She's a rheumatologist and clinical epidemiologist. She's the director at Monash Department of Clinical Epidemiology at Cabrini Institute. She's a professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine at Monash University here in Melbourne. And in her other roles, as if she's not busy enough, she's coordinating editor of Cochrane Musculoskeletal and chair of the Australia and New Zealand Musculoskeletal Clinical Trial Network. She combines clinical practice with research in a wide range of multidisciplinary projects uh, relating to musculoskeletal uh, conditions and a current program she's working on reducing inappropriate or low value care and lots of our conversations today will be about just that. As we said, she is the, uh, uh, the, the lead in the Lancet Low Back Pain series, uh, all about a call to action to address this uh, global burden. Hi, uh, Rochelle, and welcome to the ACA podcast. Thank you very much, Anthony. Great to be here. Now, I, I know from just your bio that you're an extremely busy person, but it, I was, uh, was interested uh, when I was first reaching out to you about uh, coming on to the podcast, and you were away at a conference at the time, and so I received the, the automated out-of-office reply, which usually says something like, you know, if it, this matter is urgent, contact this person. But you had to break yours up into five separate groups, uh, <laughs> one for your uh, patients, uh, one for people who are interested in the Cochrane musculoskeletal stuff, another one for the Australian New Zealand. You really are juggling lots of balls, I imagine. Uh, yep, I am. <laughs> So give us a little bit of a, uh, a snapshot of um, how you came to be involved in, well, in medicine first and, and then eventually in, in research. Uh, okay, so I guess I always wanted to do medicine, so that was how I got started. Uh, and then rheumatology, like many people, uh, you really don't know what specialty you want to do. And I, I thought I wanted to be a surgeon, but I was sort of dissuaded against that and then a couple of people I knew were rheumatologists and they talked me into being a rheumatologist so that was that was great but it wasn't until I went overseas and met people in particularly in Toronto who were doing clinical epidemiology and then I read a couple of books about clinical epidemiology on the way home in the plane that I really realized that my first love is clinical research uh, and then applying it to rheumatology. Well, you certainly have applied it with a, a great deal of success, uh, judging for, 
by your involvement in so many areas. Um, one of the areas, of course, we're going to talk about today is the, the Lancet Papers, which uh, uh, you were very uh, intimately involved with. Uh, it was put together, uh, these papers, by the um, Lobach Series Working Group. How did this group of international experts come together? So uh, we, where most of us are, belong to a group called the Low Back Pain Forum, which is an international group that meet every couple of years. And when we were meeting in Brazil, we had a presentation from Pedro Halal, who'd just put together a series in the Lancet on physical activity. Uh, and and that got worldwide coverage and, and there's been an update. And I just asked him, how did that go? how did that come about? What did you do? And he, he said he just wrote to the editor of The Lancet, Richard Horton, and about 11 months later, Richard Horton replied and hmm. said, go for it. So I just uh, suggested it to the group um, on the exec at, at the forum, and I wrote to Richard Horton. We, we took quite a while to format the letter, to work out what we were going to say in it, uh, and basically, he replied the next day saying, "I'd love to. I'd love you to do that to work on it with you." So that's how it started. Uh, and then from there, um, there was a small group of us, the steering group, that really had to think about who to invite to be on the group, and we wanted to make it uh, multinational, multidisciplinary. We wanted um, represented representation from low and middle income countries which which ended up being quite a difficulty because most of us are not from those countries um, it had to be you know gender neutral um, and different backgrounds so we had lots of different types of um, opinions uh, and that and that's really how it came together <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, low back pain is obviously the leading cause of years lost with disability. And given our aging population, uh, it's not a problem that's going away anytime soon. I suspect one of the, um, uh, I, I guess, uh, push forwards for this was the sheer, you know, global nature of the problem. Is that is that why you were sort of driven to, to start this? Yeah, absolutely. I actually led the Global Burden of Disease study for low back pain and neck pain and it became very evident that that there was huge disability and we only really included people who had activity limiting low back pain so it's not it, it, it so the disability has to be you know, most of the disability is people who are severely disabled and that that's a smaller proportion but there's plenty millions of people worldwide who are mildly to moderately disabled and because there's so many of them the prevalence of the problem is so great that's really what makes the um the disability burden so great it is the num the sheer number of people affected um, and we were also worried initially that that we didn't want the same mistakes that we've made in in high income countries to trickle down to the middle and low income countries and when we first approached the Lancet that was our pitch we were really worried about it but when we actually went went to do the the, the reviews and look at the evidence we were shocked to find that that it's probably already too late there's plenty of uh, bad care occurring already and and emulation of the bad things that we do in western countries that have already um, is already occurring in low and middle income countries 
And yes. I guess this is the thing. Uh, the main take-home message uh, of your of the papers are, are the, is that disconnect between what's best evidence and, and what is actually practiced in Western countries, and hoping that the um, you know middle and lower socioeconomic companies don't copy our mistakes. Um, we know about the the concerns with opioid medication, and they're you know being highly addictive and. Um, not particularly effective for chronic pain. What are the uh, interventions that have been shown uh, in, in your uh, studies or other studies for that have a lack of evidence or show unacceptable risk? Yes, yeah, so the, I guess the, there's four main uh, areas. One area is overdiagnosis, and, and so this relates to um, the sheer numbers of people that have imaging inappropriately. We know that most people with back pain don't have a specific and or serious cause for their pain. And so imaging them often leads to downstream harms such as more tests uh, and and more treatments and, and quite often they're inappropriate. And we think that overdiagnosis is a huge problem in the back pain field where imaging leads to uh, mislabeling of the cause of the problem and, and then that leads to, for example, inappropriate uh, opioids, inappropriate surgery, inappropriate injections uh, that, that aren't really the cause of the problem uh, and it takes away from what people should be doing which is the self-management and physical activity types of activities. So overimaging is one. Uh, opioids, uh, as you say, is another. Uh, we think that there's much too much surgery occurring. Uh, the, the evidence for um, lumbar surgery for people with back pain as opposed to um, pain going down the leg or sciatica due to a disc prolapse is, is just not uh, there, uh, but we know that um, spinal fusions and spinal surgery for back pain are increasing dramatically across the world, uh, and so that's another inappropriate treatment. Uh, and the fourth one would be all sorts of spine injections that people are offered, where there's now um, quite strong evidence that that these treatments are unhelpful, um, but they're costly and they can be, you know, they can cause side effects. So in many ways, and again, you make this clear that the, the, the challenge is that we've medicalized low back pain far too much and sort of pushed down that expensive route instead of taking the, the more simple uh, approach. So, so how do you, what are the conversations you might have with a patient, for example, that presents with a, a non-specific, non-radicular uh, low back pain in terms of encourage them, them to do things that will ultimately help improve their well-being and give them comfort, I guess, that they don't need that MRI scan? Yes, so I guess the first thing is that I explain to them uh, why imaging is can be harmful uh, and the fact that for most people we can, we can pretty much work out who have a serious problem based on the history alone uh, and those and, and those people may need early imaging because we have specific treatments or they have something really serious that, again, needs specific treatments. But for 95% of people, we just can't currently identify what the specific cause is that's, that's the reason for their back pain, and therefore we can't uh, offer a very specific cure. Uh, and most people uh, think that, there must be a diagnosis and there must be a cure. 
but there mostly isn't. And, and I think that's a really important message that we need to get across, that we should be treating, you know, the average episode of back pain just like we treat a common cold. We don't need to go to the doctor necessarily. We, we know that it will get better in a day or two, whatever we do, and we just need to keep on managing it ourselves. We might need to take painkillers for a short time if we need to, um, but pretty much we should try and, and, and continue the same activities, the same uh, exercise and, and remaining at work. Uh, and and that, those messages we've known about for many, many years, but because we get more sensitive um, tests, people think that they must therefore find, be able to find the cause. And so that's a really popular misconception that we just need to try and address and we need to change the societal expectations of, of what medicine can actually do for people with back pain. A lot of this, I guess, can be uh, you know put down to the system, particularly if you're talking in third-party terms where there's a, a, an expectation of a diagnosis from a practitioner. Uh, should we be thinking, um, whether we're chiropractors or um, particularly those involved with sort of manual medicine and particularly primary contact type practitioners, should we be thinking more in terms of functional uh, goals and outcomes rather than trying to make a diagnosis? Yeah, well, as I said, for 95% of the time, we can't reliably make a specific diagnosis. Uh, and so we should be instead focusing on providing um, patients with good evidence-based advice about what to do, uh, provide information about what the natural history is so we know that most people with an acute episode will get better, um, but a small percent will have more persisting problems. Um, the pain will often recur, uh, and that there are, you know, we know very little about how we can totally prevent this, but we know that things like exercise, um, we know what the risk factors are for, for um, having an episode of back pain, and many of them we can't actually fix. We can't change our genetic predisposition um, we can change um, from being sedentary to active we can lose weight if we're overweight um, and those are the things that we need to focus on uh, it's not like cancer we have a cancer and we can give you this specific treatment and we can suppress it it's not the same with back pain we, there's probably many many causes and currently we just you know, we, we can identify the specific cause in 5%, but all the rest, there's no strong evidence that we can actually identify the cause, even though lots of different practitioners think that they can, um, the evidence, it doesn't actually back that up at the moment. So I want to talk a little bit about your practice now. You're obviously a clinician as well as a researcher. Um, you're a rheumatologist. Um, I imagine most of your patients uh, have been referred by GPs or specialists or, or other practitioners, so they've already sort of been through the system somewhat. Um, what are the day-to-day -day patients that you see? Do any of those non-specific low back pain patients creep through to, to your door, or is it mostly the sort of inflammatory arthritis, autoimmune type of disorders that you see? No, um, I, I, I'm a general rheumatologist, so I see basically everything, and I think I have a... Because of my interests, I, I obviously generate people who want to come and see me with chronic back pain. Um, but I get lots of people with back pain, with shoulder pain, 
uh, have a lot of people with rheumatoid and inflammatory arthritis. Um, and often they have been to other practitioners and often the most important thing is trying to understand what the patient's misconceptions are, what what they've learnt from the different people. And often I'm sure that you have it as well that that they've seen a variety of people and they're getting all these mixed messages and they don't know who to believe and they're at the end of their tether and they, they just want a diagnosis and a cure. Mm. No one's actually told them that that's not possible and, and quite often they want me to fix them and and it's hard for them to grasp that it's not up to me. I, I can't make, you know, wave a magic wand and fix them. There's, there's things that they have to do and they have to understand what this problem is that they have. Um, and, you know, I often say that, you know, lots of us have aches and pains that we just live with. We, we manage day to day and if it's really bad, we might it might stop us. But generally, day to day, we can manage even with our uh, comorbidities that each of us carry around with us. And as you know already, I have migraine and that interrupts me, but I don't let it stop me. I just work around it. Uh, well, I, I definitely know. You, you, you're, you fight on very well as far as that's concerned. So in the um, area that you work in, obviously in non-specific low back pain, we have many guidelines, international guidelines and the papers that you've been involved to help uh, direct and encourage practitioners to practice in a certain way. Do you have those kind of guidelines you know, for uh, the work that you would do as a rheumatologist? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of different guidelines. There's uh, there's lots of guidelines that are developed by the American College of Rheumatology and the European uh, uh, Rheumatology Group called EULA. Um, we also have Australian guidelines, and there's lots of them. There's rheumatoid arthritis, there's psoriatic arthritis, uh, and I mean, the biggest I think the biggest change in my practice over the last twenty years has been. Um, the management of rheumatoid arthritis, and in particular, what we call treat to target. Uh, so we we need to um, treat people aggressively early on to try and suppress the disease, uh, and that's been shown to have much better outcomes for patients. And there's even studies to show that from France, if you actually follow the guidelines, your patients have better outcomes than if you don't follow the guidelines. So there are lots of guidelines out there. I guess the biggest challenge is how to make the clinicians use the guidelines to inform their practice, how we translate those guidelines into into our everyday. And that's really quite hard. And I don't think there's been a lot of enough implementation research to try and figure out the best ways of doing that mm. although over time things are getting better and and, <clears throat> and the other thing I don't think we do very well at all is we don't educate the patients or the public about what the best evidence should be so patients aren't used to asking their health practitioners well what's the evidence that this is the right approach you know what are the other options um, is there evidence that this is better than that? Uh, what are the potential harms? And, and so we need to educate the public much more to ask questions and make sure that they are getting evidence-based care. Absolutely. Uh, so within those uh, guidelines, uh, we're encouraged very much as um, in the air, in the space of 
um, mechanical type disorders like low back pain uh, to very much take a biopsychosocial approach. With your work as a, as a specialist, how do you fit that model into your everyday practice? I think it's just as important. Um, uh, as I said before, many people come to me already. It's hard to undo sometimes some of the damage that's been made by medicalizing back pain and other regional conditions. So I feel that I have to re-educate people often. Um, but in my practice in general, I always try and adopt a biopsychosocial approach. You know, I know lots about my patients. I know lots about their psychosocial. Well, I, I hope I do. And uh, if any of my patients are listening, you can um, pick me up on it if you don't think there are things that I, I know about. Um, but that's just a matter of spending time with people. And I guess I have more time than, than GPs. Um, uh, but allied health professionals in general spend more time with their patients and I figure should be able to address patients in a, in a holistic way. Now, on a personal note now, this is a, a quick unofficial case history. I'm going to talk to you about a patient that uh, uh, that has seen me, uh, and let's just call her that's a 67-year-old female. She was in actually only earlier this week. She's seen me for uh, various minor musculoskeletal issues uh, over a period of time. She had a blood test recently that was found uh, positive for HLA-B27. Uh, now, her symptoms are only quite mild, but she, her lifestyle and diet isn't that great, and I've had conversations with her about this. But she's fairly distressed about um, having uh, shown up positive HLA-B27. With this limited information that I've given you, what would you advise this uh, person to do if she was sitting right across your desk? Does she have back pain, Anthony? She does have a little bit of back pain, but she has um, she has some shoulder shoulder issues now and then, some neck issues now and then. Uh, she has what I would consider some low-level inflammatory stuff, but certainly um, her condition, I would say, is fairly mild as far as the intensity of her symptoms. Yeah, so I, I guess, I mean, I'd, 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 I'd take a careful history, firstly, and, and see whether her symptoms are more in keeping with inflammatory back disease or non-inflammatory back disease. Uh, and without knowing any more about her history, I, I uh, we know that 10% uh, of the population have a positive HLA-B27. So having a positive test doesn't mean that you've got a disease. And we know that in people with ankylosing spondylitis, 90% of people will, will have an HLA-B27 positive. So 10% of people with ANCSPOND don't have um, the gene. Uh, so... Having the gene is just knowing about your genes. It doesn't actually have any relationship um, unless you have the disease. Yes. <laughs> and, it's, and if you do have the disease, then having a, the HLA-B27 doesn't mean that you have a worse outcome. Um, the only thing, I guess, is that there'll be an increased risk that, that your offspring might have an HLA-B27-related condition. Yes. Um, but really before before we needed to test people um, for HLA-B27 um, to get them on to get a biologic drug which happened when we needed to get 
people on biologic drugs for angst bond in the early 2000s. Um, and HLA-B27 test was pretty useless um, because you would, I, you might, you know, there, there were very few situations clinically where it actually would help you to, to either confirm or rule out a, a disease. Um, so I guess I would ask why the test was performed in the first place. Yes, I think it was routine and probably prompted by the, the patient, perhaps even more than uh, by the general practitioner. Uh, she doesn't have uh, positive x-ray findings, so there's no radiographic evidence of ankylosing spondylitis. I guess the other thing I was trying to distill out of that um, was where do you go with, um, you know, when does medication become appropriate or, or, or where do you, when would you use just lifestyle uh, modification to, to manage this situation? Sure. So if she doesn't have ankylosing spondylitis, then then the, the test is irre totally irrelevant. I would be treating the patient. Um, actually, even if they did have ankylosing spondylitis, the HLA-B27 test is irrelevant to me. And, and I would be treating them based on what the clinical picture was. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, I'm so, glad... I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what I told her. So that's terrific. I, I feel reassured now, and hopefully she will too. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I mean that just highlights the problem of doing uh, over testing and and how that leads to downstream harms, including patient and um, practitioner worry, um, and that often begets more tests and, and more treatment. So hopefully, I've cut that in the bud now. Very good. <laughs> Now, your paper, if we get back to, to that, it's called A Call for Action. What action would you like to see going forward? Uh, so we want, we want everyone in the world to listen to the call for action from uh, high-level people like the, the World Health Organization. We want them to address the problem because at the moment they have very little emphasis on back pain or other musculoskeletal conditions in general. Uh, we, we think it's urgent because the burden is increasing with not only the ageing population but also the increase in the population, which is much more of a problem in low and middle income countries. So we, we know that this burden is going to increase. So we, the challenge is for the WHO to consider what they can do to address the burden. And then it's international and national leaders, both politicians, health policy makers, and then trickling all the way down to clinicians and the general public. And and so in that last paper we've we've put in there in the tables or in the in the panels, you know, what, what should patients know? What should clinicians know? What should policymakers know? What sh can they do? Um, and so that's really our call is to try and get everybody to think about how they can address the problem because there's a lot that can be done uh, even now. Well, there's a lot of things that we know. We know how to, how to treat back pain, but it's just not being um, carried out in practice and, and there's lots of misconceptions not only among the general public but also among clinicians and, and um, higher level people as well. Professor Bookbinder, I really appreciate your uh, time to, uh, for the ACA podcast today. It's been really enlightening and I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Anthony.
Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. And I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm -hmm.